Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I am Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We will begin with Biden calling Putin a crazy SOB and assess whether that is the wrong target for such blunt language that Biden should be using against Trump. Joining us to discuss campaign strategy and the role of RFK Jr. as a spoiler in the 2024 election since the biggest donor to his campaign is also Trump's biggest donor, is Lincoln Mitchell, who teaches in the School of International Public Affairs and the Department of Political Science at Columbia University. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major Leagues Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. He is the author of the popular substack Kibbutzing with Lincoln, where his latest article is Threats to Democracy Won't Go Away, if Trump is defeated again. Then we'll get an update on diplomatic efforts underway to bring about a ceasefire in the Gaza war and speak with Mitchell Plitnik, the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and a former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace. A political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy, he served as director of the U.S. Office of B'Tselem and co-director of Jewish Voice for Peace. He's the author with Michael Monthill of Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. Then finally, we'll look into what is behind the rise of a liberal politics in Eastern Europe and a right-wing resurgence in Western Europe and speak with Dr. Maria Snegovaya, a senior fellow with the Europe, Russia and Eurasian Project at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and a postdoctoral fellow in Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. She studies democratic backsliding and re-autocratization in post-communist and post-Soviet Europe, Russia's domestic and foreign policy, and the tactics of using Russian actors and proxies to circulate disinformation to exploit these dynamics in the region. And she's the author of the new book, Just Out, When Left Moves Right, The Decline of the Left and the Rise of the Populist Right in Post-Communist Europe. And before we begin, I would like to thank our listener donors who keep background briefing independent, corporate, and commercial-free without paywalls or constant fundraising by making tax-deductible donations to our nonprofit foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation, at publictruthmedia.org or at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate. As we enter this fact-free and violence-prone election year, with much of the country under the cult-like spell of a deranged demagogue spewing constant lies while inciting hatred and violence, help us continue to seek out facts and information to awaken America's silent majority before our democracy is trumped by fascism. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, who teaches in the School of International and Public Affairs and the Department of Political Science at Columbia University. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992, and is the author of the popular substack Kibbutzing with Lincoln, where his latest article is Threats to Democracy Won't Go Away If Trump Is Defeated Again. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln Mitchell. Always good to be here, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Lincoln. And we spoke a while back about RFK Jr.'s campaign, and I wanted to do an update on that. But uh, since you're an expert on Russia and the former Soviet states, what do you make of Biden at a fundraiser out here in Los Angeles calling Putin a crazy SOB 
and the indignation now that's coming out of the Kremlin referring to Biden as a cowboy and acting. I mean, <laughs> it's a bit rich that this mafia murderous regime expects to be treated with uh, dignity. And can... Yes. I... Go ahead. I, I don't like it when we refer to bad actors on the global stage as crazy. Uh, Putin isn't crazy. I don't support him. I don't agree with anything he's done. I'm certainly uh, critical of his, among other things, his invasion of Ukraine. But he's not crazy. He is acting in his own self-interest. He's acting in a strategic way. He's not always right. Uh, and he's a dangerous, dangerous figure who is, you know, backing one of our major political parties. So the basic sentiment expressed by Biden, I, I support. I might not have chosen those words. I don't know why Joe Biden, the president of the United States, should care what Vladimir Putin says about him. This is not a moment where the U.S. and Russia are getting closer. This is a moment where Russia is playing a very destructive role in Ukraine and here in the United States. And good for the president for drawing attention to that. Well, I think he could have gone further, though. I mean, what we are risking at the moment, Lincoln, is the Ukrainians do not want to live in Putin's Ukraine. And they're fighting and dying to prevent that. And he doesn't even believe that they're a real country. But what about the possibility that we may end up living in Putin's America? I mean, is, is anybody getting their heads around that? Because I don't think that is a bit of a stretch. I think that's a real and present possibility. And that's part of the problem of calling him crazy. When you call somebody crazy, you can dismiss them. And I agree with you 100%. The role that Putin has been playing in our politics for close to a decade now, going back to you know, at the, sometime in mid-2015 as the starting point, is extraordinary. He has control. He has tremendous amount, maybe not control, but tremendous amount of influence over one of our major political parties. They are doing his bidding in Congress. The Republicans who are holding up the support for Ukraine are doing the bidding of Vladimir Putin. Looking at this conflict in, in Ukraine, where you summarize exactly what's going on, I can tell you the one thing that Putin is holding on to, the one way he wins this war is by getting Donald Trump back in United States presidency. And if that were to pass, the model that Trump has laid out of weakening any institution that is not loyal to him, of replacing civil servants with loyalists, of turning the Congress, or at least his party in the Congress, to simply people who do exactly what he wants and have no independence, is right out of, not to mention the uh, efforts to weaken free media and freedom of assembly. We've seen this in Republican legislatures at the state level. We've seen this in Trump's own rhetoric and his promises, if you will, about what he will do if he does get back in. Yes, that is a vision for, that is a Putinist vision for the United States, and it is terrifying. And we should speak about it more, but you know, even many kind of centrist Democrats and pundits have bought into this notion that this is all a hoax. You know, Trump hit so hard on the Russia hoax, the Russia hoax, the Russia hoax, that people are hesitant to bring up the what could charitably called nefarious or concerning ties between Putin and Trump. Well, that aside, though, the reality is that Trump controls the judicial branch through his appointments on the Supreme Court with this far-right group of justices with a supermajority. He controls the legislative branch 
through his puppet, Mike Johnson. And according to polls, he could end up controlling the executive branch. So he's already on a roll. He's on a roll. I'm, I'm not... A lot can happen between now and November. I mean, he does. He controls much of the legislative branch. He doesn't control the Senate. Uh, he controls the Supreme Court. But we'll see. I don't think he'll win this immunity case in the Supreme Court, and that's something he desperately wants. The legislature, the, the, excuse me, the judiciary outside of the Supreme Court. You know, Biden has been putting as many people as he can, extraordinary number of federal judges in, and that helps. We have an election coming up. You are absolutely right. This is really neck and neck right now. Trump is leading in most of the the recent polls, albeit by a very narrow margin. I would be, while I don't know who will win the presidency, I would be extremely surprised if the Republicans held on to the House. So, and I expect them to win back the Senate just because of the Senate map in 2024 being very good for the Republicans. So I suspect we are going into a period where control of the federal government will be contested and continue to be contested between the forces of kind of, of, kind of a Putinist fascism and, and American democracy. And one person who I wanted to talk to you about today is helping elect Trump is RFK Jr. So what do you make of this revelation in the Washington Post on yesterday in an article, Tax Records Reveal the Lucrative World of COVID Misinformation? It's extraordinary to think that RFK Jr. has profited so much from the misinformation through his front group, the anti-vaxxing group called Children's Health Defense. But the damage that they've already done with a million Americans dying from COVID, which you can lay also at Trump's doorstep unequivocally, but nevertheless, already we've learned that the number of children getting vaccinated in this country is dangerously diminishing to a point where you may have a past the threshold where we'll have diseases that have been eradicated coming back in the future. So his legacy is already of damage is already here, let alone the political damage that he's going to do to Biden. In some states, RFK Jr. is polling at 16 percent, for God's sake. It, it, one of the characteristics of Trumpism, and at this point, Kennedy is part of that movement, albeit on a slightly different track, is that it is many things, but it is always a grift. And, you know, we saw Donald Trump on uh, on the internet, you know, earlier this week, hawking $400 sneakers that might last, you know, 15 minutes on a basketball court. And he's and he, they sold out because he only had like a thousand of them or something. But it's always a grift. It's always about putting money in your pocket. And to a great extent, what that article reveals is that that's what the anti-vaccine movement is about. It's about a small number of people getting rich by uh, spreading really dangerous, venomous lies to the American people. Now, the question of what a Kennedy needs needs with a few hundred thousand more dollars a year, I don't know. My understanding is that that family has been very, very rich for a long time, but that doesn't stop the greed and that doesn't stop the grift. It's also extraordinary that if you wanted to destroy the United States and weaken the United States, one of the things you would do is kill a million people and get a bunch of us sick from a whole range of diseases. And that is the Kennedy agenda. No matter whatever nonsense he spouts about autism, whatever completely false academics, fake academic studies he cites, that is the result of his work. And right now, as you point out, not only is he leading, you know, 16% in some of these states and, it, you know, doing, he's, according to the polls, he's the most popular in, ter in terms of having the highest approval rating of any of the major candidates. Uh, but the goal of that 
or the, or the result of that will be to help reelect uh, Trump. And why he's doing that, I, I don't know. I don't know what got into you know Robert Kennedy's head, who was definitely the outlier in this kind of mainstream Democratic family, primarily because of his views on vaccines, but to be so far on board with, with electing Trump. There was a moment when we looked at Bobby Kennedy Jr. and we said, you know, it's not clear who he's going to hurt. Now it's clear he's going to hurt Biden. That's what all the numbers are, are, are telling us. The one thing I would say that gives me a little bit of pause here is that it's still early. And third party candidates tend to, they tend to, to peak sometime in late spring or early summer before the campaigns have really heated up, before people are really under that pressure from the campaigns and the polling and the advertising and, and the TV ads and the Internet to, you know, come back to their major party. So I don't expect him to get 16 percent in any state. But if he gets three percent in Wisconsin, four percent in Michigan, will get a lot of help from Cornell West, who's really carrying Trump's water in that state. You know, three percent in Georgia and Arizona, he could shift the election. And that is very much possible. You know, we can discuss ballot access, which is always a challenge for third party candidates as well. Well, again, I wonder what alarms and bells are going off. One, as we mentioned earlier, about the possibility of us ending up in Putin's America. And number two, uh, having this anti-vaxxer skew the election for Trump to make that nightmare possible. And I'm not sure what kind of message is coming out from the Democratic Party and from the Biden administration. I mean, RFK Jr. Had, a, had an ad at the Super Bowl, went on for a long time, which was absolutely pernicious, equating him with his uncle, uh, JFK, and his father, RFK. And of course, he, he then turns around and disowns it, saying, well, it was a political action committee that did it and not me. But the fact of the matter is that the biggest donors to the Republican Party, uh, the heir to the Mellon bank fortune, is also the biggest donor to Trump. So I have to tell you, first of all, I'm from San Francisco, so I would prefer not to discuss the Super Bowl in great depth. But I did see <laughs> that ad. And I had a, a number of students, because I'm doing a project on San Francisco politics, so I had my, my students to watch the game together. And these were, some of them were young people who did not recognize the ad, which I'd seen in previous iterations, as, as an ad that was John F. Kennedy, John F. Kennedy's presidential ad. And they just thought it was a great ad. And, the, and about half of them were not Americans, and they had no idea why they were watching this. You raise this point about alarm bells. And my sense is the article in the Washington Post that we've been discussing, that's, that gets in there because somebody from the DNC, somebody from the White House wants it to get in there. They are beginning to spread this information about the grift, about who's really funding RFK Jr. And they're going to have to do a lot more of it. But I think we're, they're, they are. You can see they're concerned. You would not have read that article. That would not. That didn't come into the Washington Post because somebody from the Washington Post got an idea in their head and, and did a bunch of research. They may have done the research, but the idea, and I suspect a lot of the research, came uh, from Democratic sources. That's that's how politics works. Uh, what concerns me is that Kennedy's base here is is the low information voter, low information Democratic voter who, like many Democratic voters thinks Biden is too old, isn't crazy about Joe Biden for all kinds of reasons, and for whom the Kennedy name still is magic. It's still John F. Kennedy. It's still Bobby Kennedy's father. And of course, his uncle Ted Kennedy, who was an extraordinary, impactful uh, U.S. senator for a very long time. And those are low information voters 
who might look at Bobby Kennedy and just assume that he's his father or something like his father. They're also, ironically, I believe, is that there's a lot of uh, kind of progressive left left uh, voters, particularly younger, who are furious about this this war in Gaza and who are, uh, you know, maybe they go and vote for Robert Kennedy Jr. Ironically, uh, Robert Kennedy Jr. and, of course, Donald Trump are much, much more hawkish on the Middle East than Joe Biden. But that's the kind of information that you have to communicate over the course of the campaign. There is work to be done. The mistake here is not to take Robert F. Kennedy Jr. seriously. He can't win. He could impact the outcome of this election, and the chances of doing that are great if you just assume he'll fade away. He's not going to fade away. He has to be pushed away. So just in closing then, Lincoln, what would you recommend as the two messages that need to be out there? Uh, One, that with Trump we're heading into Putin's America, and two, RFK Jr. is the spoiler, and if you vote for him, you might as well vote for Trump. With regards to the first message about Trump, the key here is to start early. Define Trump now when voters are just when the swing voters are just beginning to pay attention. If you look up in September and start trying to communicate this message, it's going to be too late. And I guess the the part one B of that is don't be afraid to use strong language. When I first saw the headline where Biden referred to Putin as a crazy SOB, I said, gee, I hope he was referring to Trump. Don't be afraid to use strong language. Don't be afraid to tell the voters the threat that Trump represents. That was one of the many mistakes Hillary Clinton made in 2016. She just kind of assumed everyone knew because all the people she talked to knew. Voters don't know that about Trump. They think voting for Trump means getting the economy, which was weaker when he was in office, but not according to him, that getting Trump's economy back. The message should be you can vote for the old guy or you can vote for the old guy who's a fascist. I mean, it's not, it's not necessarily an upbeat message, but that's the way to do it. Don't be afraid to hit hard. With regards to Bobby Kennedy Jr., you just got to keep hitting up people that, you know, now, now eventually the polls, he'll get down, you know, if he's at 5%, then you got to push him to 1% and it becomes easy. And the way you keep his numbers down now is you attack him on the substance. This is a grift. Let the world should know how much money Robert F. Kennedy Jr. put in his pocket, right? The world should know that while Joe Biden is doing, in my view, a flawed but good faith effort to reduce the number of civilian casualties in Gaza and to wind down what I view as just a terrible war, Robert F. Kennedy Jr., like Donald Trump, would give this, in my view, avaricious, murderous, criminal leader in in Israel the license to flatten the place. So if you want to save Gazan lives, the only guy that can really help now is Joe Biden. Well, Lincoln Mitchell, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you. It's always a pleasure. And again, I've been speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who teaches in the School of International and Public Affairs and the Department of Political Science at Columbia University. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And he's the author of the popular substack Kibbutzing with Lincoln, where his latest article is Threats to Democracy Won't Go Away If Trump Is Defeated Again. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back with an update of diplomatic efforts underway to bring about a ceasefire in the Gaza war.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Mitchell Plitnick, the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and a former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, a political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. He served as director of the U.S. office of Betzalem and the co-director of Jewish Voices for Peace. And he's the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Mitchell Plitnick. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Mitchell. And what do you make of sort of rumors of peace, if you will, or at least some kind of ceasefire? You've got President Biden's Middle East coordinator, Brett McGurk, having met today with Netanyahu and also with the defense minister, Gallant, after which Gallant said that Israel will expand the authority given to our hostage negotiators. Previously, of course, Netanyahu said that the talks in Cairo with Hamas, he suggested that Hamas's demands were ludicrous, mm-hmm. and that gone nowhere. But on Wednesday night, Benny Gantz, a member of Israel's war cabinet, said there had been momentum on a new draft of a deal that indicate a possibility to advance. So what do you make of these possibilities? Well, I think... The 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 ultimate issue, I think, that 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 will decide the fate of a ceasefire is whether or not there's any real possibility that that ceasefire becomes permanent, because from Hamas's point of view uh, and and I think from the Palestinian point of view uh, in general, um, a a temporary halt that is meant to only to to free the Israeli hostages was of course should happen and that should happen unconditionally, but a temporary halt which 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 only serves to free the hostages just means Israel will start this up again as soon as uh, the hostages are free as they did last time. Um, so I think that the and uh, while I also think that it is probably more than probably uh, certainly unrealistic to expect that Israel. Will, um, or the United States would agree to a permanent uh, cessation of hostilities in exchange for the release of hostages. I think there's got to be at least some possibility that a temporary ceasefire can turn into something more lasting if Hamas is going to agree. I, I honestly can't see why they would do uh, why they would agree under any other circumstances. So what do you make of this planned high-level summit in Paris that is being organized uh, with Egypt and Qatar and representing Hamas? Who's involved in that? Clearly, you would think that the American efforts would carry more weight given America's influence over Israel. Well, I think one of the problems that America has been pursuing this sort of grand regional, you know, the, this regional approach that that does many other things besides uh, ending the the slaughter in Gaza. Um, and and a lot of that has been happening without uh, without Israel. And I think Israel's uh, vote to in the Knesset a couple of days ago that said that they would not accept the imposition, as they put it, of a Palestinian state reflects Israel kind of reminding them that none of this can go anywhere without them. I think, unfortunately, that's true. That being said, I do think there are things that are being pursued here 
uh, there, there's one of the things that that isn't getting a lot of press is that Qatar and uh, Saudi Arabia are working on an arrangement that would bring Hamas into a reformed Palestinian liberation organization, the PLO, um, and would facilitate a technocratic government for all of Palestine. And I use the term government very loosely, since obviously it's still under occupation. But this is the, you know, this is once again a, a prospect of Palestinian unity. There have been many efforts that have failed before, but but you know the situation now is pretty desperate. So I think there's some hope that something like this could succeed and could bring about a a unified Palestinian political system that can actually advocate for Palestinian rights in a more realistic way. That, I think, can come out of this, even though uh, it's only being pursued as part of a broader strategy. Now, the broader strategy, I think, is doomed to failure. Um, the idea that you can dangle... Um, uh, normalization with Saudi Arabia in front of the Netanyahu government to get them to not only agree to stop the, the slaughter in Gaza, but also to open up the real possibility of a Palestinian state is, I think, hopelessly naive and completely clueless about what's happening in Israel. Um, it, it misses the, the key point that the prime minister of Israel has no real interest in anything that stops this war because the day it's the day this war stops he's going to be out of office there's almost no chance that uh that he can survive the end of this war and him not surviving uh the end of this war as prime minister means he could very well be facing criminal charges that could land him in jail this man has no reason to see this war end even though he'd like to normalize with the saudis but uh but but it that desire is nothing compared to his desire to stay out of jail. So he's uh, he and his his right flank, which is more or less you know running the running the country at this point, um, they will bolt uh, without a doubt. They they will bring the government down if this war ends without a much more decisive uh, uh, victory than what they have right now. In fact, you know probably as long as Gaza is is even has uh, any substantial population left in it, they will probably uh, consider that a failure if, if Israel stops before, before the point that Gaza is really drained of, of many or most of its people. So um, I, I think this, this move by the United States um, is, is just living in fantasy land, which is what Joe Biden's been doing about Israel for 50 years. So how realistic then is Netanyahu's and the IDF's apparently, mission to eliminate Hamas as a, as a military force. I mean, well, I don't know where they are in terms of how many they've killed, how many remain now. They're talking about taking Rafa on March the 10th, mm -hmm. signaling that, which is pretty odd that they're making so many signals about it. And, of course, nobody knows how, what to do with the people down. They've already been pushed into that enclave at any rate. Uh, there's nowhere to go. I don't know what these reports about Egypt planning some big open-air prison mm -hmm. for the refugees. Yeah. So just walk us through where you think the military situation stands mm -hmm. at the moment. Well, I, I think, yeah, I don't think anybody with this who, who, who looks at the situation seriously, and I think this has been true from day one, um, really believes that you can eliminate Hamas with military force. Um, 
the you can certainly diminish their military capabilities um and and israel has has done that to some degree um have not eliminated them but they they have certainly uh, impacted them um but hamas as many people have pointed out um is the symbol for palestinians of armed resistance um it is for some segment of the palestinian population um, the the a, a desired symbol of an Islamist rule. I think Hamas is not particularly popular as an organization because they are authoritarian and theocratic. But you know, at this point, they are also supported by some some a significant minority of the Palestinian population. You're just not going to be able to eliminate that without uh literally eliminating the palestinian people and and you know one might argue that that's the real goal of these operations i think the the idf seems to recognize that they're not going to be able to eliminate hamas i think they know that i think the uh the current uh program which i think is being driven much more by the government than the military is indeed to drive at least a few hundred thousand people out of gaza uh, and into the Sinai, into Egypt, where Egypt is indeed building. Uh, they have been constructing a an enclosed area that would house the people of Gaza much the same way as they're being housed in Rafah now. You know, Rafah is uh, a government of about that normally has about two hundred seventy five thousand people, and it's now taking in an additional one point one million. Uh, that is obviously not sustainable. Um, and in if those people are driven to Egypt, uh, Egypt seems to be preparing for that eventuality, even though I think they, they don't they don't really want it. Uh, I think they, they were kind of caught between you know, a rock and a hard place where they were saying we don't want to in any way enable Israel to do this. But Israel is going to force these people into the Sinai. And if we're not prepared in some way, then we're going to have a major crisis on our hands. So I think that's why they're doing this. I, I think the United States kind of urged them. Uh, it's not a coincidence. This construction project happened around the same time that Antony Blinken went to Cairo and met with Egyptian President uh, al-Sisi. Uh, I, I do not find that timing coincidental at all. So I think the United States gave them some incentive uh, to do this as as, uh, as and, and, you know, explain to them that this is going to be a better option than anything else you have to look at. So the military goals, I mean, have been from the beginning unrealistic, at least the stated ones, uh, which is one of the reasons that uh, I and many others have believed that the real goal here is to basically smash the Palestinian national movement. Uh, and this is we need to remember uh, we're seeing escalating violence in the West Bank as well. So it's not only happening in Gaza. Um, we're seeing also talk about, you know, you, you pointed out the, the March 10th date for uh, an operation in Rafah. Uh, that is the beginning of Ramadan, which is, of course, the, the holy month of the year for, for Muslims. And Israel is already talking about barring Muslims from uh, the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem. So, you know, we know what a touch point or what a flashpoint that will be. Uh, it, it does seem from all appearances that Israel is looking for any way it can to escalate this this already horrific situation into one that essentially uh, is aimed at, in my view, uh, wiping out the Palestinians as a as a national uh, national consciousness, as a as a people in the national sense. 
Well, barring Muslims from the Al-Aqsa, it would just be another red flag, particularly to the Saudis. And the Jordanians, of course, who used to used to have access mm -hmm. to the to the mosque until the 67 war. So if the US has weighed in on the Egyptians to the extent that they're prepared to build this kind of open air concentration camp, they've resisted all along because they don't want the Palestinians to be dumped on them permanently, which is the right. sort of history of what's happened since 1948. So they must have really put some sweeteners in there, don't you think? I think they, they I, I don't know how much they really had to sweeten it because as I said, I think the real impetus for Egypt to have done this is a recognition that um, they weren't going to be able to stop uh, the, a, a significant flow of people fleeing Gaza if uh, if Israel attacks Rafah uh, under the current conditions, mm -hmm. and there's because there's really nowhere else for those folks to go. The rest of Gaza is destroyed, so um, you know they would end up forcing their way past the Rafah checkpoint into Egypt. Um, at when Egypt would then and Egypt would then be confronted with either gunning them, literally gunning them down at the border, um, or letting them in and and you know, just trying their best to find some place to put them. And so I think that the biggest impetus here was simply Egypt uh, trying to avoid those kinds of scenarios that I think Israel is forcing on them. And I think, mm -hmm. again, this goes back to why uh, Egypt tried uh, tried first to threaten to pull out of the Camp David Accords if Israel if Israel tried to force people into, uh, into uh, Sinai. Right. So just in the last few minutes then, Mitchell, let's talk about... Uh, for example, uh, Martin Indyk, former U.S. ambassador to Israel, he's uh, saying now he was pretty skeptical about the possibilities of a two-state solution, but he thinks that the sort of ir irony, if you will, of this Israel war on Hamas has been to revive the possibility. Others over here, in terms of our so-called experts on Israel and Palestine, are skeptical. Mm -hmm. uh, wh where do you come down? Um I don't. I don't think this has changed anything on the ground uh, in terms of why a two state, the two state solution um, isn't just, um, off, in my view, outside the realm of possibility because people no longer want it. Um, I think it's it's outside the realm of possibility because it's physically impossible. Israel has made it physically impossible through settlement expansion and, more importantly, connecting those settlements both physically and most perhaps more importantly, economically, to the state of Israel. So it would be an enormous undertaking to uh, to to eliminate those settlements. And without eliminating the settlements, there is no possibility of a viable Palestinian state. So I think that's one problem. I think the other problem is that, that the whole discussion is frankly delusional. Uh, as it happens, I'm writing about this right now, um, the framing of the two-state solution is that what would be created is a demilitarized Palestinian state. Now, I mean, it, it is it it just beggars belief that anyone is so naive as to think that Palestinians uh, would accept a demilitarized state after what's happening right now, after the 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 ongoing pogroms by settlers in the West Bank, the escalating attacks by the Israeli military there, and an attempt at genocide in Gaza, to then say to Palestinians, well, you have to live next door to Israel without the ability to defend yourselves. 
um, in, in, in a state that has no that is demilitarized and that is limited to just police power that, that would be used internally. Uh, I mean, who in the world would accept that? I, I would think that even the most passionate pro-Israel uh, person would look at that and say, well, you know, they may even say the Palestinians brought that choice upon themselves. But I still think they would look at it and say, yeah, I wouldn't accept that either if it was me. Um, it, it's an insane formulation. So. Um, this idea that there is any way out of this through a two-state solution, I think, is is insane. Um, it is delusional, and it's it's also the wrong approach because right now the the important thing is to stop the slaughter in Gaza, and that should not be tied to these other regional ambitions, no matter how possible they are. You do this thing first before you even think about doing any of those other things. That's just basic decency, basic humanitarianism. Well, Mitchell Plitnick, I thank you for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Mitchell Plitnick, who's the president of Rethinking Foreign Policy and former vice president at the Foundation for Middle East Peace, a political analyst and frequent writer on the Middle East and U.S. foreign policy. He served as director of the U.S. office of B'Tselem and co-director of Jewish Voices for Peace. And he's the co-author with Mark Lamont Hill of Except for Palestine, The Limits of Progressive Politics. We're going to take a brief station break and back looking into what is behind the rise of illiberal politics in Eastern Europe and a right-wing resurgence in Western Europe. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger Traveling through this world below There is no sickness no toil nor danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father and all my loved ones who've gone on. I'm just going over Jordan. I'm just going. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24 7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now, Dr. Maria Snegovaya, who is a senior fellow with the Europe, Russia, and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, and a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. She studies democratic backsliding and re autocratization in post communist and post Soviet Europe. Russia's domestic and foreign policy and the tactics used by Russian actors and proxies to circulate disinformation to exploit these dynamics in the region. And she's the author of the new book, Just Out, When Left Moves Right, The Decline of the Left and the Rise of the Populist Right in Post-Communist Europe. Welcome to Background Briefing, Dr. Maria Snegovaya. Many thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And clearly there has been backsliding and of course Viktor Orban being kind of the poster boy in many ways for that. But then, of course, in Slovakia, there's a similar phenomenon. But there's also a sort of twin phenomenon, if you will, in Western Europe, where over the past few decades, the social democratic parties that dominated European politics for decades have all but vanished in Italy, France, Germany, the Labour Party in the UK, although it's making something of a comeback now. 
So uh, this is a broader phenomenon, isn't it? Not just located in East Europe. Yeah, absolutely. That's one of the main motivations uh, behind the book and the argument uh, that uh, many of the arguments uh, that are made to explain uh, this dynamic of um, electoral systems, they tend to be idiosyncratic, region-specific. Post-communist Europe has its own set of explanations that primarily tend to, to focus on how young and fragile uh, these polities are. Uh, Western Europe certainly has a lot of explanations that have to do with transitioning to post-industrial stage. And while they all certainly have a grain of truth to them, uh, what is not explained by those uh, those arguments is precisely this parallel dynamic across multiple regions. And by the way, that certainly goes beyond just Europe alone. Uh, there's also a lot of similar parallels in Latin America, for example, and elsewhere. And essentially, I claim that uh, this um, dynamic has been partly launched by more pro-market rebranding uh, that was uh, implemented by left parties, center-left parties in both Western Europe and post-communist Europe um, in the late 80s, early 1990s um, uh, period. And while uh, at first it seemed like the great idea, in the long term, uh, this dynamic de-aligned the traditional electorates of these parties, the working class groups. Uh, the irony, the kind of sad irony, is that post-communist Europe largely followed in the first footsteps of Western Europe as they were branded in 1990s, the third so-called third wave of branding, this adoption of market reforms um, and pro-market policies seemed like a really good idea. Uh, but uh, they miscalculated uh, partly because uh, they did, uh, did not appreciate different structure of the economy. While in Western European context, uh, as the economy is indeed uh, transitioned to post-industrial stage, the sheer size of working class groups started to shrink and many of their voters, um, ex-blue ex collar voters, became service workers. Uh, that was not the case in post-communist Europe, uh, where the economy is largely state industrial. And that means that, as I show, uh, up to 60% of their population, uh, like, like working adults, they were still employed in uh, um, uh, those blue-collar working-class occupations. And so this rebranding that de-aligned these classes, like the, when they these groups, uh, the social economic groups that realized that the left parties were no longer representing their interest, they effectively pushed, it effectively pushed away uh, up to 60% of the electorates, uh, potential electorates. So that was certainly not such a great idea in post-communist post, uh, context. Well, it also happened here in the United States, did it not? Uh, with oh, the yeah, neoliberal neo policies backfiring and Trump benefiting from it, clearly with the white working class in many ways, the bedrock of the Democratic Party now very much a part of the new Trump-controlled Republican Party. Well, that's absolutely true. Uh, my book in particular focuses on uh, Europe, uh, since one, one has to limit uh, oneself uh, to one region. Uh, but certainly, uh, this dynamic goes beyond just Europe. The United States pretty much demonstrate the very same trends. What is new about my argument is most of the literature until now has focused on the uh, sociocultural uh, part of the story. Uh, and most of the arguments are just, hey, uh, these are just highly xenophobic 
um, you know, electorates who don't like immigrants or different ethnic and racial groups. And that's why they support this uh, essentially evil populist parties. Uh, but as I argue, uh, this sort of explanations uh, underestimate the role of the economic insecurity and economic dislocation, which uh, itself tends to contribute to a lot of um, uh, resentment, which sometimes finds its manifestation is also growing and growing ethnic uh, clashes, for example. And uh, it's also important to pay attention to this ex economic argument, partly because it's much easier to sort of cure those types of grievances, right? It's very hard to push somebody to change one's identity, but it's relatively easy to address economic grievances by, for example, increasing uh, the amount of redistribution, certain social policies and whatnot. Uh, but it's also very important to understand these undermining um, grievances uh, that are driving this populist swing uh, partly because um, uh, when uh, uh, these groups are incorporated by uh, center-left parties, uh, the center-left parties tend to keep them within the political mainstream. They're not too polarizing. But once these groups are incorporated by the populist right, as you pointed out, uh, it, it, during the process um, that is, has become known as the so-called proletarization of the populist right um, in Europe, and also the United States, then uh, it's actually quite threatening, uh, as unfortunately we get to see uh, in the United States as well. Uh, this is very threatening for democracy because populist right is indeed more prone uh, to using this polarizing, um, xenophobic uh, language. And uh, eventually it may actually lead to breakdown of democracies. Something like that we actually witnessed already in uh, uh, Western context during the interwar period between the First and Second World Wars. Uh, that's precisely what happened. Uh, there was a lot of economic dislocation, uh, crisis. All of that contributed to the rise of uh, uh, social grievances and uh, eventually primarily among these economically vulnerable electorates, the working class groups, and eventually uh, many of these electorates have been incorporated by these extremist uh, rightist movements, uh, which eventually became the fascist movements and contributed obviously to the start of the Second World War. But Maria, you mentioned immigration and in August of 2015 was when the Syrian dictator basically gave an ultimatum to his people, he gave them sort of corridors to get out before they get killed. And this was exactly coincided with when Russia moved in to Syria. Uh, at the time, the Supreme Allied Commander of Europe referred to Putin's weaponization of refugees. So hundreds of thousands of Syrian and other Afghan and Iraqi refugees poured into Europe. And Chancellor Merkel gave them refuge in Germany, but in September, the Visegrad group, the Czech Republic, Hungary, Poland, and Slovakia, basically re refused, found this whole program unacceptable. And in many ways, that led to the rise of, of, in popularity for people like Orban, who made a strong stance against it. And of course, the Brexit movement in the UK, which has paralyzed Britain, was also motivated largely by emigration and, and paranoia over emigration. So 
how much is 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 uh, do you think the issue of of immigration was weaponized or demagogued? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, in my argument, uh, while I focus on the economic side of the story, I'm careful not to uh, say that cultural factors do not matter. Well, as you said yourself, they obviously matter, right? We literally see an increase in vote share for populists and far right in Europe following the uh, 2015 immigration crisis, right? So certainly it is important. Uh, but uh, first of all, Populist right parties, um, just generally populist parties, are oppor opportunists. That is, they will use any opportunity that's available to them to increase support. And certainly the immigration party, the immigration crisis was one just such big opportunity. Uh, plus it perfectly matched this uh, rightist, uh, you know, nativist agenda platform of these parties. And that is, by the way, one of the reasons why actually uh, talk about the story that precedes 2015, uh, since 2015 certainly makes it much, much harder to distinguish between the social, cultural, and economic explanations. Uh, but the reason why I focus uh, particularly on the economic argument uh, side of the story is because much of the success of the populist right in post-communist context actually precedes uh, 2015. Uh, by 2015, Orban, Viktor Orban, is already in power for actually five years, uh, since 2010. And uh, Law and Justice Party, uh, while it actually, uh, in Poland, while it actually wins uh, the 2015 election, it already has been in power before uh, by then, uh, in the mid-2000s. Uh, in the mid 2000s So clearly, that is not everything that happens, because those populist right parties of my of interest to me, they already have been able to achieve electoral success before. And in addition, as you pointed out, historically, despite their very nativist, uh, strong nativist anti-immigration stances, actually, uh, the irony of that is that Eastern Europe actually has not been receiving immigration. It was not on the recipient side. It, 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 it's actually the region which itself supplies immigrants to Western Europe, but immigrants do not usually stay uh, in Eastern Europe. And so while this party certainly um, politicized these uh, fears of, of immigration, the irony is that really, it's really one would be really hard pressed to find a large, large number of immigrants in these countries. Uh, but, and that certainly, that suggests that uh, the immigration is not all of the story. What happens is, as I said before, in my in my opinion, is that there are all these underly underlying grievances that are associated to generally, you know, the, the, the post-transition period in these societies, uh, especially among these particular groups, that they may not have achieved the socioeconomic status that they were hoping for. Um, that is also partly driven by the policies of Brussels, which sometimes kind of get ahead of what uh, culture those countries are able to accept at this stage of development. And uh, all of that provides very prolific ground for all these opportunistic actors, you know, to use various narratives in order to mobilize support. And in doing so, they often wrap economic grievances into the cultural package. What I mean by that is, for example, one can emphasize the importance of nation, nationhood and nation building, right? While claiming that uh, we should stick to our, you know, roots, uh, traditions, and we should not, you know, open our societies to um, like foreigners in an effort to protect, among other things, our culture, but also well-being of our people and our local jobs, 
right? So this is classic nativist, uh, welfare chauvinist platform that is often used by uh, populist right parties. But is it really economic or social cultural nature? I think one would be hard pressed to distinguish between the two. They're kind of wrapped together. So right. essentially what I'm saying is while both factors are quite important and the immigration crisis definitely helped the populist right, the major part of the story, the rise to power really in many of these countries uh, takes place before, which suggests uh, that there's something else that happens beyond just the immigration. But it's the appeal that Orban has to American conservatives who laud him all the time and want to model, you know, the Heritage Foundation's Project 2025 is based upon Orban's idea that he's standing up for white Christians. As, as In fact, that's Putin's appeal as well to the far right here in the United States or even the MAGA right. So what's interesting, though, is that, the and, and it, obviously it was also a similar appeal that the Law and Justice Party had in Poland, they were voted out recently and things are changing in Poland. Is it possible that with the scandals now that Orban is facing, is it possible that uh, there could be a, a move in Hungary similar? In other words, how deep is the appeal that Orban basically saying, we're the real Europeans, we're the white, Christian, pure Europeans, not contaminated by these... Uh, brown people and Muslims, etc. Certainly, what it seems to be happening is that frustrated with the socioeconomic outcomes of the globalization or in past communist context is known as like market transition, which was wrapped to in the same package with uh, policies of economic openness. Uh, this uh, constituencies are susceptible to these uh, appeals based on uh, this alternative vision. I think this is one of the factors that which makes perhaps Orban in particular so attractive to, say, Trumpist electorates in the United States as well. This is something other than just globalization and trans transatlanticism, which was offered by the so-called like uh, the DC elites, uh, the swamp uh, that apparently allegedly under this rhetoric does not cater to the interests of the ordinary American uh, worker essentially. Uh, the problem is that there's really not much behind the um, this uh, nice, um, you know, uh, cover uh, other than, uh, frankly, the good old authoritarianism uh, that Orban is offering. Uh, Hungary is the first uh, European Union country to actually become, uh, to lose its free status under Freedom House category, categorization. And uh, uh, the problem specifically in the post-communist context is that these marketization reforms were happening at the same time as uh, political reforms, more democratic reforms were happening. So what people, what was actually the result of the market reforms, uh, the economic dislocation and misfortunes, people, many people attributed to political reforms. They conflated democracy and the market. And so it became very easy for uh, political actors, entrepreneurs like Orban to, you know, reject the basic tenets of liberal democracy under this claim that they're actually helping people to regain the economic well-being. Uh, and that's why political liberalism is often, often gets rejected across the region together with um, um, economic liberalism, essentially, under this rhetoric, which, of course, is extremely threatening and challenging and certainly uh, problematic and should be countered. Uh, in Poland, this dynamic hasn't gone as far, 
Luckily, as we have seen, and so it actually allowed to the the um, uh, more mainstream parties uh, regain control. Uh, by the way, they also have learned a little bit from uh, the experiences, and they're now adopting a little bit more um, economically protectionist uh, policies, which is one of the reasons for their uh, recent success. Uh, so certainly, um, the um, uh, mainstream parties, centrist parties, should keep trying to do that in Hungary. But it will be harder because in Hungary, the essentially the um, uh, this dynamic of um, illiberalism and uh, the erosion of democratic checks and balances, it has gone uh, much further. Orban has been in power since 2010, and since then he quite consistently eliminated uh, many of the um, checks and balances, eroded media freedoms, uh, which will make it much, much harder uh, for him to be eventually removed. Having said that, uh, his recent, um, you know, very, very weird stances on Russia and China consistent effort to block, for example, the EU effort to assist Ukraine, really has created a lot of enemies to him in the European Union. And I think what we certainly should expect is certain reforms within the European Union in the long term, which will limit the ability of one uh, country to veto uh, the EU decision-making process. So at sure. least in that regard, we can expect certain breakthroughs, and hopefully it will also help to, again, reinstall a more the tenets of liberal democracy in Hungary as well going forward. Right. And of course, the irony is that, that it's European subsidies in many ways that keep Hungary going. And Orban is a total kleptocrat. He's him and his cronies pocket a lot of it. So I thank you for joining us. Uh, we've run out of time and I, I appreciate it, uh, Dr. Maria Snegava. Many thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Maria Snegovaya, who's a senior fellow with the Europe, Russia and Eurasia program at the Center for Strategic International Studies and a postdoctoral fellow at Georgetown University's Walsh School of Foreign Service. She studies democratic backsliding and re-autocratization in post-communist and post-Soviet Europe, Russia's domestic and foreign policy, and the tactics used by Russian actors and proxies who circulate disinformation to exploit these dynamics in the region. And she's the author of the new book, Just Out, When the Left Moves Right, The Decline of the Left and the Rise of the Populist Right in Post-Communist Europe. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media. And please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.